0: Well, we hope you have your Bibles. Let's turn in them to Daniel chapter 9 this morning as we come to one of the most fascinating sections of the entire book. And again, I know that that is a big statement. For the book of Daniel is fascinating in many ways, in many places. But today we get to a section that I hope you're prepared for. If you decided to change to decaf this morning, today was the wrong day to do it. Let's begin reading in chapter 9, starting at verse 20. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain... And of my, people, of my God, <clears throat> yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh Daniel, now come forth, I have come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Growing up, my grandfather used to have a saying that he repeated often. In fact, there was a time that I actually remember my grandfather uh, actually having one of those old uh, type of watches, pocket watches, you know, with the chain and so forth. And whenever he wanted to convince somebody of something's accuracy or scheduling, he always used to say, you could set your clock by it. And it was to reinforce the, the fact of the dependability and the idea that he could always count on something happening at a very specific time. The book of Daniel gives us a prophecy that you can set your clock by. In the first portion, the first 19 verses of chapter 9, Daniel was praying. He was seeking God, repenting on behalf of his people, Israel, because he realized that the scriptures had indicated that their time in Babylonian captivity was going to be limited to 70 years. And with the arrival of the Medes and the Persians, and knowing that Cyrus was the one that would eventually let them go, who, of course, was a emperor of the Medes and the Persians, he knew that their release was imminent. So he began to pray. Because in the prophecy, given in Jeremiah 29, 10 to 17, Daniel realized that This would provoke the people of Israel to repent, and upon that repentance and the seeking of God's face, he would hear them, release them, and bring them back to the land in which he gave them. And so the time has come, and Daniel in the first 19 verses seeks the Lord. And we waited now to reveal the answer to that prayer this morning. As we find now in these verses that we have just read, Gabriel was released, sent to Daniel specifically to give him the revelation. The angel Gabriel has been affectionately called the bouncer of God's people. He takes care of things. I don't know about you, but this is not someone you'd want to trifle with. Gabriel was also the one that watched, uh, watched over Israel during the coming of the Messiah, Gabriel is one of three angels named in the Bible. Gabriel, Michael, and Satan. Gabriel here now is released, sent to Daniel to give him the revelation, assuring Daniel now that he is beloved by God and he is now giving him understanding to, an instruction in understanding and how to understand the prophecies that were given in Jeremiah and where the children of Israel sat at this moment. But in so doing, Gabriel opened up a brand new world to Daniel. A world that went far beyond just the simple release of the Israeli people back to the land in which God promised them. To a time where Messiah would come once and then come again to help us know and to understand how much time has been set aside for the dealing with the nation of Israel. So as we begin now to venture into the revelation in which Gabriel is now giving Daniel, let us understand that this is answer to prayer. So often, Christians, I think, have adopted a secular idea of prayer. That is that it's perfectly acceptable for us to talk to God, but if God talks to us, it's schizophrenia. Now, I think we need to clarify that God answers us primarily through His Word. And anything that is revealed must always be brought into the subjection of the Word of God. If something is specifically revealed that contradicts any portion of God's Word, it should be dismissed. This is the final authority. But I think it's important that we as Christians in our prayer lives remain sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I think it's important that we wait on God. Maybe He'll lead us to a passage of Scripture that will clarify and help answer the prayer in which we are given. But I've often found one of the greatest assurances in the answering of prayer, or the greatest uh, thing that we can do to allow God to answer the prayer, is to wait on God. You know, there's three answers to prayer. Yes, no, and wait. The third one gives me problems. I don't know about you. Yes, I can deal with, no, I'll get over, but wait is often the most difficult. Gabriel seems to indicate that there was some time that passed. From the very minute, Daniel, that you began to pray, I was sent to you. And now I have arrived. Often waiting on God's answers to prayer is one of the most difficult things that we can do as Christians. But let me assure you, it is the safest and the best thing that we can do. Often when we read of individuals who have prayed and then taken matters into their own hands throughout the scriptures, they often made a greater mess of things than if they just would have waited on God to uh, resolve it. And I think we're seeing that in our nation now, aren't we? God is resolving issues that we have been confronted now with for the last two years, isn't he? It's amazing how the truth is now coming out, how things are changing. You know, like the weather in Chicago, if you don't like what's going on in front of you, just wait a little bit. It'll usually change, right? God has a tendency to work things out. But often, the problem is is that He doesn't work them out according to our timetable, our schedule. And because of that, we, we grow impatient, discouraged, frustrated, fearful, worried. But God's not worried. God's not fearful. God knows exactly what He's doing, always. And there's nothing too hard for God. And as we see God work, let us wait and see what God ultimately does. And I think we are seeing God work already. So, as we come now to verse 24. As Gabriel has been sent to Daniel, he now begins to give him understanding concerning the vision. Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now we have to read this passage as a Jewish person would read this passage. A period of time has been determined, meaning cut out or prescribed to the people. What is that period of time? The Hebrew words used here are Shabu Shemim. I expect you to memorize that and impress all of your friends. It means 77 77 periods of time. Now let me say that again. Seventy-seven periods of time. It's not specified what those periods of time are. In some cases they could be days. So, 77 periods of seven days. Or, it could be 77 year periods of time. Either one can be applied to this passage. But as we go on, we discover quickly, and from the very beginning, it has been interpreted as 77 year periods of time. Okay? Now, if you weren't so good in math, we've put calculators in front of every single one of your chairs. I'm kidding. Some people are already looking for them. Oh, good, I, I need that, you know. So 490 years have been prescribed, determined for your people. Now, this is vastly more than what Daniel prayed. He just thought that the 70 years were coming to an end. And that his people were going to be released, which they will be. But Gabriel is revealing something much more to Daniel. Seven year periods of times times 70. 490 years total. And in those 490 years, we will will find that these following things will happen for your people and for your holy city. So it's for Jerusalem and for the Jewish people. Number one, to finish the transgressions, that is the willful sins that have been committed against God, the sins that have continuously drawn them out of covenant favor with God from the beginning, the sins that they continue to uh, commit to cause them to enter into periods of chastisement, chastening, judgment, such as the Babylonian captivity itself. Secondly, to make an end of sins, meaning that the daily process or yearly process or annual process of bringing sacrifices before the Lord will no longer be necessary. Bringing a sacrifice onto the Lord for the kofar, the covering or atoning of sins before God, will be brought to an end. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Bridging the gap once and for all between man, fallen man and holy God. This, uh, this gap of iniquity, which is merely covered by the animal sacrifices given on behalf of the Jewish people, will now be taken care of once and for all. That bridge, I'm sorry, that gap bridged once and for all. But then it goes even further. To bring in or to usher in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy, meaning that they will no longer be necessary. God communicating through his people through visions such as Daniel had just received. Or written prophecy such as Jeremiah had given. And to anoint the most holy. This means the anointing of the most holy to the Jewish mind would have meant this. God occupying the holy of holies there within the temple. That's what it means. And all of this will take place in 490 years. That's what he is saying. Now we're going to find that there are some nuances to this 490-year period of time. Like other Jewish prophecies, there's often gaps that that are defined by starting points and ending points to allow for an extension of time, and yet then being fulfilled in the prescribed time in which God originally said. Now, I believe that what we are reading here is the accomplishments of Jesus Christ in his first coming and in his second coming. For example, in his first coming, I believe that he will once and for all finish the transgressions. In his personal sacrifice upon the cross of himself, he will allow a new covenant to be instituted, the new covenant, and in that new covenant that is performed perfectly kept by the finished work of jesus christ the jewish person the individual in that covenant is no longer subjected to the conditions of retaining that covenant promise as they were in the old testament so if an individual in the old testament was given the um, responsibility of observing all of the laws of god god gave them the law you obey the law you are blessed you disobey the law you're cursed jesus christ came in and he fulfilled that covenantal requirement and now in him all the promises of god are yes and amen because he has fulfilled it perfectly we still have responsibility of Christi- as christians of course but those responsibilities, I do not, uh, I do not believe, weigh on the, uh, the salvation in which we are given by grace through Jesus Christ. Christ brought an end to transgressions. To make an end of sins. The requirement of the daily and annual sacrifices that needed to be made unto God were going to be brought to an end, which happened at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you remember, the moment he was crucified, the veil in the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, indicating that mediation between God and man has now been produced and given, and now we simply have to, uh, by grace and faith, accept that and interact with God through that mediation of Jesus Christ. His Death on the cross, Hebrews outlines this for us beautifully in the New Testament, satisfied all of the sacrificial requirements of the Old Testament, bringing an end to sins. And in so doing, through the resurrection and the new life that Jesus Christ exampled for us, brought an end to iniquity and reconciled us back to God that we may have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. So those three have been fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. The next, though, I believe, will be fulfilled at his second coming, Revelation 19, to bring in in everlasting righteousness. Well, we certainly don't have to look far to see that that has not yet occurred, do we? But will occur as we enter into the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, and of course, be solidified in the new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. Next, to seal up or to bring to an end the the necessity of vision and prophecy. Well, we're not going to need vision and prophecy when we're there with Jesus, are we? Those things aren't going to be needed. Paul made the same uh, comment when he talked about those things being fulfilled at the coming of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13. And lastly, to anoint the Most Holy. When they built the temple in in Jerusalem, the Shekinah glory fell upon the temple and it indicated that God was there with them. In their sin and disobedience, that Shekinah glory was removed. This time, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he himself will sit in the Holy of Holies. And he will be present with us from that point forward. So these all will be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In a 490 year period of time. Is that enough for this morning or do you guys want to go on? Verse 25. Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So there will be a seven, seven seven-year period of time, equaling a total of 49 years. And there will also be a 62-week period of time. And if you add these together, you come to the conclusion of 483 years. These two periods of time are bookend by the going forth to restore and build the temple there in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem itself. And these 483 years end with the coming of Messiah the Prince some of the new translations use words as anointed one where the King James Old King James uses the word Messiah the Hebrew word there is Mashiach and it means Messiah they use the word anointed one it's not incorrect but I do believe that it isn't complete it isn't specific enough then it's followed by the word prince in the newer translations and it opens it up to other ideas concerning how this prophecy may be fulfilled. And because of time's sake today, we don't have time to venture into all of those. But there are other opinions concerning this prophecy. I, after looking at them for 30 years, I personally do not believe that the other possible recommendations of fulfillment of this prophecy are accurate. I think they are weak in comparison to the one I am proposing this morning. So for these seven period, seven-year seven periods of time and 62 week periods of time, or 62 seven-year periods of time, the streets shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. So they're going to get there, but it's going to be difficult. So why the division of the two? Well, most scholars believe that in the first 49 years, that 49 year indicated the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. From the time this was given, or I should say from the time that the uh, order was given to let the people go back and to rebuild their temple was 49 years. From that period of 62-year periods of seven years, is when Jerusalem reestablished itself. It went through many different phases in very troublesome times. And of course, we know that by the time Messiah came, it was under Roman rule. Very difficult. They just a- exited the Maccabean War and then the Romans came in and, and you know how it goes from there. But at the end of the 62-year uh, uh, period of time... You try doing this, Okay. <laughs> After the 62 seven year periods of time, Messiah will come. Very interesting. How do we know that? Verse 26 And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. At the end of the 62 weeks, Jesus Christ will be cut off, means executed. But not for himself. Newer translations translate that to be brought to nothing, or some have argued uh, grammatically that it could be with nothing. From the ground level perspective of Jesus' first coming, the Jewish people would have believed that his first coming was a failure. The reason being is because their expectation was that he was going to usher in a new zenith of existence for Israel, which he'll do at the second coming. But at his first coming, they believed that the Messiah was going to be their great liberator, freeing them specifically from Roman oppression. I certainly believe that this is the reasoning behind the cry for Barabbas over Jesus when given that opportunity by Pilate. They believed that Barabbas was going to do what Jesus was incapable or unwilling to do. Many Jewish scholars debate if he was incapable or unwilling to do it. But that wasn't the purpose of his coming. The oppression that the Messiah came to free us from was not that of Roman oppression, but the oppression of sin. To bridge the gap once and for all between man and God through his sacrifice, giving new life through his resurrection. Even the disciples didn't get it, and they argued constantly at who was going to sit at his right hand. Even right before he was about to ascend into heaven, they asked him again, now will you establish your kingdom on this earth? And oh, by the way, can, you know, where do we get to sit? Some of them even had mom come into the argument. Can you believe these disciples actually got their mom involved to petition Jesus for a good place in his kingdom? That's amazing to me. I guess you don't mess with a Jewish mom. But if you look at it from ground level, everybody would have said it was for nothing. The last three years of his ministry was for nothing. The miracles were for nothing. The healings, the resurrections, or resuscitations, because they had to die again, were for nothing. Nothing. He claimed to be king, but there is no kingdom to be had. He claimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, and yet it hasn't been established. And you get the idea. But the new King James writer adds another phrase not for himself, meaning that what he went through and what he did was not because of his sin or because of his guilt, it's because of ours. And so this this period of time of 483 years ends with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Some time ago, a famous British detective, inspector actually, named Sir Robert Anderson, who was a devoted believer in Jesus Christ, took his analytical skills and wrote a book called The Coming Prince. In that book, he meticulously works through the calculations of the Jewish calendar of 360 days, taking into effect all of the Jewish holidays and so forth and everything that needed to be observed, and realized that from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, which took place... In 445 B.C. under Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, calculating it out 483 years accordingly equals April 6th, 32 A.D. The exact day that Jesus Christ rode in on the donkey into Jerusalem the exact day seven days later he was crucified prophecy is that specific that accurate if god says something's going to happen it's going to happen but often it's according to god's timetable and not ours And yet, with all of this beauty contained in this prophecy, we're still left with a dilemma. Because only 483 years have been accounted for. But the promise initially was for 490 years, leaving us one seven year period of time left to be accounted for. Let's continue. Verse 26 tells us that after Messiah is cut off but not for himself or brought to nothing, not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Of course, shortly after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, 70 AD, Titus Vespian came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The word flood there in Jewish mind can also refer to something being leveled, like being washed away. And so Titus Vespian brought everything down to ruins, including the temple itself, which literally he took apart piece by piece, brick by brick, to Ascertained to to gain the gold filling that was between each block of the temple burned it and allowed and then went after the gold brick by brick and remember what jesus said he said not one brick shall stand here upon another exactly what happened later and in 70 a.d jerusalem the temple were destroyed Children of Israel were scattered. The Jewish people were scattered throughout the known world. And yet, only 483 years of this prophecy have been fulfilled, leaving a seven-year period of time that God has still prescribed for the Jewish nation of Israel to deal with because it has been determined for them. So what has happened? Paul seems to indicate in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that when the Jewish people rejected their Messiah, God turned his attention to the Gentile world. And I believe that after the destruction of Jerusalem, we went into a period of time known as the period of the church. And the period of the church will last as long as God has prescribed it to last and will come to a close with the rapture of the church. At the moment the church is raptured, it is an event where Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, calls the church to himself, and then something happens after that occasion. Something happens after that event. Paul talks about this in Thessalonians, where he talks about one being taken out of the way, and in so doing, that one who is currently resisting the rise of the Antichrist from coming into a world position of power. I told you this was going to get heavy. I hope you were ready for it. Coming into a world position of power would be allowed to do so. It appears that what will happen at the close of the age of the church that we are in currently today, the church will be raptured, allowing for the rise of the Antichrist to begin. And Revelation tells us something very interesting that the reign of the Antichrist will last, guess how long? Seven years. I believe the last seven-year period of time is found for us in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, outlined and detailed for us what will transpire in that seven-year period of time. I'll give you the cliff notes. The Antichrist comes to power, the rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6, followed by all of the events leading up until The gathering in the valley of Megiddo, resisting the return of Jesus Christ. What a futile idea that is, isn't it? Jesus Christ returns on a white horse with a cloud of witnesses, which I believe is us, to establish his physical reign on the earth for 1,000 years. The millennial, which is spoken about very specifically in Revelation 20, leading then into the new heavens and the new earth, Revelations 21 and 22. But during that seven-year period of time, the Bible indicates that the Antichrist will come onto the scene as a peacemaker, a political figure, one who appears to have answers to enigmas that have troubled the world for years. It will appear that he can do signs, wonders, and miracles, and he will gather a following to himself unlike any other before him. Then something happens. In the middle of that seven year period time, at the three and a half year mark, he will be mortally wounded. And he will appear to be mortally wounded and then arise again, appearing to be back from the dead. I think that's been done before, hasn't it? Know something about Satan. He's not a creator, he's a counterfeiter. God is the only creator. And in the creation that God has created, Satan often counterfeits that creation to draw people away from God. Revelation 13 tells us that at that time, the Antichrist will be filled with Satan himself and plunge the world into the last three and a half years of that seven year period, which is known as the Great Tribulation Period, a time that this world has never seen. And if Jesus himself were not to return, no flesh would be left. Horrific. So as we are in the church age right now I believe that the clock will start again on the prophecy of Daniel at the rapture of the church. When we're taken out the Antichrist is allowed then to be revealed and come to power and then he will wreak havoc upon this world for seven years. In verse 27 we will know the beginning of of this seven-year period of time by a covenant that is made with who we believe is the Antichrist with the people of Israel. In verse 27, now let me state this. One of the greatest fulfillment of prophecies happened in, of course, 1947 when the, when the Jewish people came back and were given back their land And they were regathered as a sovereign nation in the world. It's never happened before. Then in 67, they regained Jerusalem. Which, of course, they've hung on to since. Even through very difficult and trying experiences. Again, many will argue that they are there illegally. I would ask you to revisit history before drawing that conclusion. But to have all of this occurred, the nation of Israel had to be back in their land, and they are. We know that a new temple will be built eventually. And we know that they've wanted to rebuild a temple for years, and will do so eventually. But we also know verse 27. And then he, and they're talking about this one, the prince who is to come one who is still yet to come further uh, in the future, shall confirm a covenant, an agreement with many for one week. There's the last seven-year period of time. It appears that the Antichrist will strike a deal with the nation of Israel. Some speculate that in that deal, it will include the rebuilding of the temple there in Jerusalem. But notice, but in the middle of the week, He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. What does all that mean? Last week we talked about the prophecy, or two weeks ago we talked about the prophecy of one coming called Anicus Epiphanes who came during the period of the Maccabeans, and he desecrated the temple there in Jerusalem by resurrecting a statue of Zeus and, and offering a pig, which of course was a defiled animal, on the altar there in Jerusalem. And so we have the prophecy of Anachus Epiphanes' arrival, a period that many had deemed to be the abomination of desolation since it is indicated here as such. And then Jesus came. And confused us all. In Matthew 24, he told the disciples that when you see the abomination of desolation, he says, Then you know. Flee. But wait a minute, Jesus, Anicus Epiphanes came hundred years earlier or so. Jesus said, you know, Jesus is telling us that this event is still futuristic. Until you come to Revelation 13 and you realize, based on Paul's writing in Thessalonians, that in Revelation 13 it will be the Antichrist who enters into the rebuilt temple and demands to be worshipped as God. Setting up an image of himself to be worshipped as God, defiling the temple, the great abomination of desolation will come at the hands of the Antichrist who is still yet... To come and will continue until the return of jesus christ in revelation 19 at that moment the antichrist and the false prophet will be consumed by the word of god the prophecy of daniel is a prophecy that you can set your clock by it is fascinating, it is intriguing, and it is a further confirmation that the Bible is truly the Word of God. How close are we to the rapture? We don't know. It could happen at any moment, at any time. We don't know when God will close this chapter and begin the next But this is what has been determined for God's people, Israel specifically. And when it begins to be poured out on this earth, the world will be plunged into a period of time like the world has never seen before. Everything we see happening in our world today is leading to this moment. Through the last two years, we have seen how the world has been conditioned and primed for the arrival of the Antichrist. Things that seem theoretical or almost impossible and certainly improbable now have become a reality. We have never seen things forced upon society as we have in the last two years, haven't we? The Antichrist will demand that each person pledge allegiance to him through the receiving of a mark on their hand or on their forehead and without it they cannot buy or sell if they choose not to receive it they will be executed for their decision in doing so i never thought that i would turn on the news and see people uh kept from going into a grocery store because they don't have a vaccine passport did you ever see think you'd see that I never thought that our society would be so divided and pitted against one another. Did you ever think that, think that unvaccinated people would become the scourge of society and of course everything was their fault? We see how politicians can pit people against one another, can turn and divide a society. The Antichrist will perfect this. Because not only will he demand to be respected and to be uh, revered as a world leader, he will at one point come and demand to be worshipped as God. Now, I don't believe the church will be here for that. But there will be those who will not be taken in the rapture of the church. And this leads me to something I want to talk to you briefly about in closing. I think that we are in the current position as a nation, a society, as a church to take advantage of the opportunity that God has given us for evangelism. Sharing our faith with those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. We know what's going to happen next. And I don't wish that upon my worst enemy. I am purposely trying to take time with anybody who would like to talk to me about the Lord. And it's usually not contained in one conversation. It's usually multiple conversations. But in 2022, may I encourage you to get back to the core elements of our Christianity. You know, prayer daily, reading the word daily, evangelizing whenever the opportunity presents itself. Taking that risk. Oh, they're going to hate you. They're going to push back on you. They're, they even, you know, they might, you know, persecute you greatly and not invite you to Christmas. But you know what? If we truly say that we love those who we know who do not know the Lord, how is it that that love can be expressed in any way but sharing with them the love of Jesus Christ? Some of you have family members. Some of you have children. Some of you have co-workers that you care about deeply. The world has proven to us that almost every institution in this world does not have the key answers that society is looking for. There is a straight, such a great deal of fear in our society right now. Oh, it's, it's, it's Fear is such a powerful motivator in people's lives. And if it can be exploited, they will exploit it. We have the opportunity of a lifetime, if I may say, to share Jesus Christ with those who will listen. Now, you may say, I've tried to share, but I've gotten such a backlash from it that I just stopped. I didn't want any more problems or tension or or with the family or whatever. Greg Laurie said something once, and I remember him saying it at a conference. He said, sometimes when people react that way, it's like throwing a stone into a pack of dogs and the one who yelps the loudest is the one who got hit the hardest. It may be conviction that they are wrestling against. It may be realizing that they know that you're you're right, but they just don't want to accept it. It's also important that we understand that as people realize that the deepest questions that they have in their life are not going to be answered and supplied through the institutions, the philosophy, the knowledge, and the intellectualism of our world, and only through God, it takes some time to get over the letdown, to be open to hear something more. So we need to be patient in our evangelism. Let us not avoid those opportunities. Let's take those opportunities as God provides them. Taking time out of your week to maybe have coffee with someone that you normally wouldn't, but because they're interested in the Lord, you, or you may feel burdened to share the Lord with them, invite them for a cup of coffee. Take time to evangelize. And let's see what God will do in 2022 as we simply share the gospel simply with people to see what the Spirit will do through it. Because we know what's coming next, don't we? And though there may be a sigh of relief at the end of the pandemic, right? Things are going to get back to normal. We are just on a stretch of train track that we haven't seen that in the near future falls off a cliff. Now is the time to share the love of Christ with those who will listen. Because the Word of God gives us prophecy that you can set your clock to.